Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is the one and only Bill Henderson. If you don't know about Bill, you haven't been paying attention to change in the legal industry. In his day job, he's a professor of law at Indiana University Maurer School of Law, where he holds a Stephen F. Burns chair on the legal profession. Bill is a prolific writer and speaker on the legal market. He's well known for assembling some of the best and brightest thinkers of the legal industry on his blog, Legal Evolution. In fact, Legal Evolution has been around for a number of years in various shapes. I'm proud to be member number two of Legal Evolution Forum, and I have the card to prove it. He's been a longtime friend of the firm, a personal friend of mine, and he's worked with Seifarth on our own innovation journey. It's always just incredibly fun to catch up with Bill. Listen in to today's conversation to hear how his outsider perspective as a firefighter and paramedic shaped his career in the law and colored his assessment of law firm hierarchy. How a simple proposal to teach a class on the business of law firms in 2003 revolutionized the law firm curriculum and why he thinks the legal market today is a lot like the automotive market of the turn of the 20th century. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. As always, check out the show notes for links to Bill's work. Bill, thanks for joining us today. Steve, pleasure to be with you. How have you been handling the pandemic? I know you're back in uh, live classes this fall. Are you looking forward to it? I'm very much looking forward to live classes again, and uh, I'm moving a little bit toward a normalcy. So the university's done a really nice job of balancing safety and creating a good educational environment. So Yeah, that's great. We had talked to Kat Moon and Dan Lina in the podcast as well, and both of them observed the fact that one of the things they missed the most were those spontaneous moments of interaction with students before or after the lecture or, yeah. the, or the class. And I'm sure you feel the same way. Yeah. There's all sorts of research on what leads to a great law school experience and its relationships with your peers and with faculty. And it's just those spontaneous moments that lead to those better interactions. You know, breaking some bread at Nick's. I think you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) I do indeed. (laughs) I have fond but fuzzy memories of those. I just go for the Diet Coke there and the Stromboli, so. Yeah, well, I used to go for the Stromboli, but I'd usually have something other than Diet Coke. <laughs> All right. But you could do that as a student. Yes, yes, that's yeah. right. Well, let's start by talking a little bit about your history. I know most of our listeners are probably familiar with your bio. I, you started out at the University of London, where you dropped out and came back, started a landscaping company, and then became a firefighter and paramedic. There's a little bit of the, I, I, I started a landscaping company when I was 12. And uh, and did that for many years, put myself through college, did a junior abroad at the London School of Economics, dropped out, and then continued to support myself running a small little landscaping company until I got the job as a firefighter. I think we're all shaped by our experiences as we we grow up. How did being a firefighter, paramedic, how has that shaped your current career as a law professor, as someone who's one of the deepest thinkers around in the legal profession and all the things you're doing? How does that shape you going forward? So uh, uh, one of your former guests is Jason Barnwell. We've bonded over this topic of having an outsider's perspective. Uh, Jason being a software engineer with an MIT pedigree and then being dropped into law where nobody wants to automate anything. And, and he was a fish out of water. And I had the same experience being a firefighter paramedic. 
just to be clear here, I was a nerdy guy that dropped out of university or London School of Economics during the height of the Reagan Revolution. I didn't want to be a Reagan revolutionary. But once I got to the firefighter, I was the guy sitting in the radio room watching C-SPAN and reading The Atlantic and Scientific America. So I was <laughs> I was a little bit uh, unusual, but I got drafted into going to the union meetings and they had me take notes. And through a sequence of events here, I got to get involved in collective bargaining and was reading annotations of statutes before I really knew what the statutes were. But, you know, we had a collective bargaining act and I read up on that. And it was the first time, you know, when I got involved in collective bargaining where I, I stayed up all night just because I wanted to do a good job on something. And then I realized that maybe I should be going, and I was negotiating against lawyers. And so maybe I should go back and revisit my decision to drop out of law school, which I've written about <laughs> on Legal Evolution. You can find, you can see this story on Legal Evolution, which is a, a bit of humble pie. But anyway, the huge advantage was, and this story is probably worth uh, uh, recounting here. I, it's uh, I'm married, have a young daughter, and my wife, she's supporting the household. I resigned from the fire department. I'm still collecting my benefits there as I'm burning down my comp time. And I get, uh, and it's the fall of 1998 here, and I get invited to a bunch of big law Christmas parties. What they did is they invited a bunch of uh, big law you know, elite school grads, and I was at University of Chicago, or elite school students, just say, hey, come to our Christmas party, maybe we'll give you a summer job. And there were six of them, and because it was a very go-go time for big law in 1998 with the internet uh, going crazy. And I went to six parties, I got six job offers by going to six parties. And I hadn't even taken my finals yet. Or I take my finals. I didn't know what my grades were yet. And I was confused. I had 11 weeks of legal education. So like I could see right through the shallowness of the, of the human capital strategy of law firms. Just like I could have gone to Cleveland Marshall and you guys never would have looked at me. And now you guys are fighting over me. And that outsider perspective, when you see that this hierarchy is built on tissue paper, that was the huge advantage that I had here because it made me circumspect on all these other things that, you know, they're socially constructed that I just don't give my allegiance to. Or I just, I don't necessarily think that there's a lot behind them. In the late 90s, I don't know how many uh, law students had had life experiences like you'd had. It's, it's more common now, I think, yeah. than it was at the time. Was it that sort of life experience and that maturity of perspective that sort of sounds like it steered you away from a, a life in big law? Well, you know, I, I actually, uh, I worked my first summer at Jones Day, really liked it. I worked my second summer at Jones Day and Kelphy Halter Griswold, you know, I split uh, there. And I had wonderful experiences at both places. And I think I would have enjoyed practicing law. They were entirely good experiences. It did not make me disenchanted with big law. It just that I thought that their emphasis on selecting people wasn't particularly rigorous. You know, <laughs> uh, my secret sauce was not being more intelligent than my class. Classmates. I was. I had never seen a group of people more intelligent than the people that were collected at University of Chicago that were my classmates. But what I, I did find very strange was is how they fell into line and were competing over these minute rankings for interviews, callbacks with these big law firms. And I, I was just going to the Cleveland law firms that offered me a job here. So I was kind of on the sidelines watching this. They're trying to get a job in New York or Chicago or LA. And there was this frenzy that kind of took hold. It's like, these people are incredibly intelligent, but they seem like they're trying to 
compete in a contest that they really didn't even know existed a year before. And I, and I thought that that was really strange. And also, what about the firms that didn't show up on campus to interview? Well, maybe there was something that we're missing, you know? And so, uh, you know, one of my peers got a job at Sussman Godfrey, which at the time, which is a big plaintiff's class action firm here. And he had a different experience. I thought how odd it was that maybe that was more interesting, you know, work than maybe working on the defense side. And one big effect it had on me, Steve, is when I got this job at Indiana, and I'm well suited, I think, to be a law professor. That's just how my mind works. You know, going back to, you know, watching C-SPAN in the radio room at the fire department, <laughs> the, uh, that I really felt like there was an information gap and I wanted to close it by creating a course that looked at law as a business. And these kind of courses didn't exist in law schools and, and nobody ever kind of explained the economics of how the legal industry worked, you know, and I started, you know, getting data from the American lawyer and dropping it into spreadsheets. And that's how I taught this course called Law Firms as Business Organizations. And that launched my career. That literally launched my career. So there is a through line here that by me being a firefighter, it caused me to ask questions that created a course, that created a research agenda that got me tenure. I'm curious. So you start working at IU as a law professor. And as you point out, the law as a business courses are now pretty common. Yeah. Law schools. Yeah. But yours is, if not the first, one of the first. Yeah. They used to ask me for a syllabus. Yeah. And there was a couple before me. I should give them credit. Yeah. But this is a change process for a law school to develop a new criteria, to develop a new course. Yeah. Uh, what was it about the dynamic at IU that, that led them to, someone had to sign off on you doing it. You didn't just get to yeah. do it. I, I can remember the chairman of the curriculum thing said, you know, uh, we had a person that's going to teach this uh, securities regulation too, which you were going to teach. So why don't you Instead of teaching that here, is there another course you want to teach them? Well, I've always wanted to teach the law firms as businesses. And they just gave me the rope here. They, we do have a history in Indiana of picking a topic that's kind of aligned with your research interest or your passion and taking one of your courses and running with it. And that was my opportunity. So that they handed me a blank slate, said, what would you be interested in teaching? And I created that course proposal out of that. That was 2003. That was my first year of teaching in the spring. And I taught that course for the first time the next year. That's an amazing story. As you start analyzing the business side of law firms, as we all know, they're an unusual cat when it comes to yeah. business structure. As you started to get into it, you must have had these moments where you're scratching your head and going, does it really work that way? I, I've been having those uh, moments for, for more than 15 years. <laughs> I continue to learn more and more and more about it here. Yeah, I've had many of those moments. One of them that was really, really interesting uh, led to my first paper was that more and more firms were going from a single tier equity tier you know, partnership to a two tier partnership with non-equity equity partners. And this was the clear trend line, but the most profitable firms were single tier. Like, why are we moving away to a model that's clearly less profitable, but that the you know, correlation is not causation. And I got some help from some folks here to do some interesting statistical analysis to basically suggest that if you're not in that top league of folks here, where you're like a Cravath or a Davis Polk or something like that here, you need a strategy to compete with them. And the two-tier strategy was basically your response to not having this elite pedigree. And that was a, an analysis that fit. And that was counterintuitive to me. That was not obvious to me. 
more recently, I think I've begun to realize that law firms are basically an agglomeration of independent enterprise businesses where partners, much to their credit, acquire, bill, and collect you know, a lot of revenue around areas of expertise that they've developed. And those are independent you know, economic juggernauts. Hopefully, there's synergies amongst the partners at the firm. But I think it's very difficult to govern a large law firm because these enterprises have independent strength. And so it makes it very difficult to have a kind of like this firm strategy is X. Well, it's like these guys and gals that have developed these enterprise practices have different opinions on this and it's hard to get them to fit together. And so uh, these law firms, you can't take conventional corporate theory and apply them to law firms. You're going to need your own theory to explain law firm governance. And that took a long time to get my head around that. It took me a long time being in law firm governance. <laughs> it took me a long time to get my head around the same thing. Yeah, the idea that good ideas will carry you only so far here. And, uh, you know, and it's difficult to get, you know, lawyers to want to spread, to share risk across a broad enterprise where they don't really have an intimate connection with their partners. And so it's very, very challenging. I want to come back to the structure of the business here in a second, but staying on your chronology, I, I've heard you tell this really interesting story around this moment of almost serendipity where you're presented with a paper essentially on bimodal distribution of income yeah. and, and about how that really launched into <laughs> your paper. Could, tell us that story again. I know you've told it a hundred times. Yeah. But... So I'm at the ABA annual meeting. There's a section on legal education that's run every year back in the, in the time where you used to go to these big in-person conventions and you'd have the section on legal education. And Jim Leipold, the longtime director of NALP, walked in with a stack of papers on this bimodal distribution. So think about a, a bell curve where height and weight are on a bell curve or, or revenue and profits. There's all sorts of things that kind of produce a normal distribution. And one of the things that didn't at the time was the entry-level salaries for people out of law school. There was a kind of a hump around $50,000. And then there was, you know, not a lot of real estate. And then there was another hump at around 125000 And Jim Leipold said, this is very, very strange. And it was the first time that that distribution had ever been produced here. And I looked at it as like, this is incredibly salient because it's telling you that there's some fundamental inefficiency in the market because in Greg Malkin, the great Harvard economist, has actually looked at the law by modal distribution and said, you know, labor markets don't clear this way. This is a very strange market. And it was basically a shortage of elite graduates, people that are on law review or went to national schools to basically feed the beast of big laws. It was growing very, very rapidly. And the big law not wanting to part from and model, throwing money at it and bidding up the salaries and then passing on to clients. And then the clients starting to rebel. And I uh, wrote a, a little article on the empirical legal studies and I analyzed, I said, this is the biggest, most important graphic of the year. Here's three things, takeaways from it. And it kind of went viral. And I think I was the first person to, Jim gets credit for producing it. I think I get some credit for interpreting it and making it and kind of having it go into the popular imagination, realizing that this market was not normal. Yeah, I can remember reading that paper back when it came out and thinking, oh, of course I know that. But, <laughs> yeah. but you... I've lived it, but you don't internalize it. You don't see it. And, and what it speaks to is we talk about the legal industry as if it's a monolithic organization. 
And it obviously is not. You've got big law and sole practitioners and not-for-profit. Flavors of big law. Variegated flavors of big law. <laughs> Variegated flavors. Well, it plays into, I presume, you, you've done the research and written the backdrop for the California study on the regulation of yeah. the profession. And does this amalgamation of entities, the flavors of big law, play into the challenges that re-regulation of the industry has? Well, I, uh, they're connected. I mean, the, the corporate law firm model is one of the most enduring paradigms. You know, there's 10% of the Fortune 500 in 1955 you can still find on the Fortune 500. But take the 10 biggest firms in New York in 1933 or 1932, they're pretty much all around. And they're still at the top of the league table. So this partner associate model has been in very, very enduring. What is progress though is we become a much more legal regulated interconnected globalized society every time a business goes over a boundary it creates legal complexity and then we digitize things and so you you have this need for more and more law and actually the customers have gotten bigger and so the customers have as they've gotten bigger they need more legal needs they've imported some of the law firm talent into growing basically in-house legal departments that are basically oftentimes the size of major law firms embedded inside corporations that's a new phenomenon. And so we're, at, I would say, four generations deep into the big law model. It's very, very profitable, Steve, but it's very, very profitable from the point of view of you're taking specialized work that can't be done in-house, that has to be done by a subject matter expertise that does a lot of them. They tend to be more senior people because the clients are resisting kind of junior entry-level leverage, unless you, you know, it's your Paul Weiss or Wachtell or something like that. And so the big law model has to deal with this change in the marketplace has become much more, it's older, uh, it's a different kind of leverage, it's non-equity partner leverage, staff attorney leverage, counsel leverage, and some associate leverage, but a lot less than it used to. And I believe these are adaptations to uh, productivity imperative. So that uh, the first dealing with this idea of doing more with less is just to take law firm associates, bring them in-house, liberate them from timesheets and business development responsibilities, put them on salary. And, you know, they make less money, but they get your operational work done here. Now you have the legal operations thing here, which is basically a methodology that's taken root inside of the legal departments, but now it's being exported to places like Cyfarth. Cyfarth has a legal operations team. It just happens to be on the sell side as opposed to the buy side. And so you've got this uh, kind of connected to the California report. The key point for the California report is law is a cost disease industry, just like medicine, just like higher ed, just like government. You have knowledge workers that are very expensive. And as we grow as a society, we're allocating more toward these very human capital intensive fields. And the problem is, as we lay greater claim and wallet share on society, they say, well, can't you guys figure out a way to be more efficient? So medicine's had to get more efficient. Higher ed is under a lot of pressure to get more efficient. Law is under a lot of pressure to get more efficient. And so big law is slowly having to adapt a four-generation model to become more efficient. And, you know, this is what's lead to like legal zoom and the people law sphere, the opposite of big law. But it's all having to do with more with less, using technology, process, data to do it. But, you know, Steve, this will take three generations to, you know, it's so slow moving that we, we accuse it of no progress being made here. It's going to take my career and your career and one more career. And then we'll be done. I think that's right.
What's your assessment of the work being done in California and Utah and Arizona and Washington? I mean, we had uh, Lucy Ricca from uh, Utah on and talked a little bit about their regulatory sandbox. Yeah. Any hope for anything beyond four generations from now? Well, a couple of things. One is I applaud the folks that are going about changing the rules here. I don't think we need capital so much as we need lawyers and allied professionals to co-venture with one another shoulder to shoulder to kind of build, stand up new type of products and develop new business models. I just think the lawyers alone, we're too insular to do it ourselves here. We need the marketing people, the finance people, the process people, the data people to do that. And so uh, that's the real reason I think that you want to liberalize 5.4 is to enable co-equal high-quality collaboration. It's not necessarily the capital. I've written about this. I mean, I think about what can you do without having to kind of change the rules. And I think that there's a lot of innovation that's happening that's within the four corners of the rules now. And I think that uh, we sometimes conflate the liberalization of the ethics rules with access to justice. Those are two things that aren't coextensive. They touch upon one another. But if we want to do access to justice, we need to do dispute resolution for move to redesign online dispute resolution where you don't have lawyers on both sides writing uh, uh, pleadings because, you know, most of the cases can't support that. And so that's in the California report. Like, you know, like access to justice is really about redesigning dispute resolution. But I think that productizing legal services, which is very promising, requires co-venturing of allied professionals and lawyers, and just so that we collaborate in a higher quality way here, because lawyers only know law. And right now, when the lawyers have to own all the upside, how are we going to get the best process people, the best marketing people to come work with us if the lawyers insist on getting all the profit? They won't even yeah. understand the business problem, the, the business plan. We're just stuck there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a challenge both in terms of the reward structure that you have available to you in terms of the allied professionals. Yeah. But there's also an underlying challenge, or we found a challenge over the years, an attitudinal challenge towards viewing allied professionals at a peer level yeah. for the lawyers, because these other professions are equally skilled in their profession as lawyers yeah. are in their professions, yet that's a hard concept for many lawyers to embrace. I want to just respond to your point here, Steve. You make a really, really, really good point. First of all, or just one point that I want to recognize here is to be an equity partner in a large law firm, you have to acquire, bill, and collect a significant sum of money. And that's hard. This is a very competitive world we're living in here. It requires tremendous focus, tremendous stamina, tremendous work ethic, and a lot of different things on the interpersonal level to kind of pull that off here. So when somebody builds a practice here, Hey, let's give them credit. They built, they've done something really, really hard. And I think that from far away, people like me probably come off as, you know, say, oh, you're not a good businessman. Well, so you built a great practice. And so I think it's very important to kind of emphasize that particular point. The second thing, though, is, and I had this epiphany about a year and a half ago, I was with some consultants that were running a big session in an Ivy League institution where they had the world's biggest firms there for this uh, session on the next generation of law firms. And one of the consultants broke down and he goes, he says, you guys have no idea how good a business that you are in here. You're doing professional services with insane profit margins. And we're here today to try and make them even more profitable. You're at the top of the heap already. And I think that one of the reasons why it's difficult to do this, Steve, is is because we're kind of at the end. This is pure crystalline. These are great businesses where a uh, an equity partner running a practice is going to make a couple of million dollars a year, potentially. That's like Major League Baseball money. And so society would like to be able to do more with less, or the clients would like to be more with less here. But, you know, you can understand 
it took a long time to get in that position and just it's just a hard equilibrium to change so because people are making some money but they also earn the money they do it's it is very hard work to be successful yeah. as a partner at a big law firm nothing's given to you anymore if it ever was it's hard work. It, yeah, it is, it is hard There's work. There's no truck in the basement with a bunch of uh, firm level clients where you just you do you just pick interesting projects from the inventory. That's not the way it works. Uh, we like to think it used to work that way for our prior generations, but uh, having been around for a very long time, I know it never worked that way for at least yeah. 40 years. Before we leave the re-regulation part of it, I'll, I'll put in a plug for uh, Legal Evolution, your blog. You had Dan Rodriguez, the former dean of Northwestern Law School, write a series of articles on what he called the federalization of lawyer regulation. And for anybody interested in it, it's a really interesting sequence of writings. And I encourage <laughs> people to check it out. I was, I was very grateful for it. It's a bar federalism. And it's basically not only do you have to do liberalization to kind of enable these kind of next gen businesses, but you got to, you got to get 50 jurisdictions to hold hands and jump all at once, which is like an insanely difficult game theory problem. Right. That's right. So you not only are the editor of Legal Evolution, you write a fair amount on it as well. We don't have time to cover everything, but you've written a couple of blog posts where you equate the legal market today to the auto industry. Yeah. Sort of around the turn of the 20th century. Yes. Tell us a little bit about how that metaphor works in your mind, how you see the analogies playing yeah. out. So, uh, when I was in college, I did a bunch of research on the automotive industry in Northeast Ohio. So I got to sensitize me to this issue. But in 1905, there were 1,900 car makers making 3,000 models of carbies. They all saw the potential of, of putting a motor in a carriage and kind of like, you know, using it to drive, go long distances. And, uh, and they're all right that cars are the future, but they were wrong was going to be their car. And if you look at these market maps that are produced by like Thomson Reuters or Walters Chlor or a few of these other ones, you see all these almost a thousand point solutions where there's some lawyer that got an idea there's a better way to practice law we could do this more efficiently we could uncover this insight if we did if we use this particular technology and they've launched a company and they're all right this efficiency and process and technology is going to enable us to do more with less or, or do things that are better and higher quality the problem is is that uh, there's too many of them and it creates this chaotic confusing marketplace and so we really didn't have cars go mainstream until you had mechanics and replacement parts and garages that could do repairs and you knew how to sell your car if you needed to get rid of it and trade it in here and the two people that kind of survived this threshing period of the first two or three decades of the automotive industry one was ford who figured out how to build a really really good car and then how to make it cheaply everyone else was trying to build a cheap car or a luxury car he wanted to build a, a good utilitarian car and then he figured out a process to make it cheaply and that was Ford. And then General Motors, I think it's Durant, uh, who is the brainchild behind there, realized you needed a network of dealerships to basically deal with these kind of like uh, consumer facing, you know, practical problems. And so uh, that is one part of the metaphor. The second part, though, is when the big three actually took 90% of the market here, it took them 50 years for them to lose that privileged place. And there was a lot of arrogance and incumbent bias in there. And I do think that the big four or big three losing their market share over 50 years is kind of what big law is going through. It's like you can continue to run this model for quite a long time here before there's really serious competition. I mean, it took three and almost three generations to go from the top to where the American automotive industry needed to change. 
I encourage people to read that piece. I think it's post 231 on, on legal evolution. It's probably the most significant thing I've ever written on legal evolution, just because uh, I've been thinking about that for 15 years and I've been reluctant to write about it because lawyers don't like the industrial metaphor, but it fits. It does fit. I thought it was one of the more fascinating blog posts I've read. So I, I wanted to make sure we touched a little bit on it. You have written about and you've had your guest write about the vertical integration component yes. of law firms in terms of the model and the challenges of moving to that and how this is probably intergenerational. And you picked up on that on the yeah. uh, on the ballpark. So so change comes one funeral at a time. I think I heard Dave Wilkins say it say <laughs> at one point. That's Talk. Max Planck's point. Uh, the famous physicist, science advances one funeral at a time. The old guard have a hard time adopting the new orthodoxy. Right. What do you mean by vertical? Tell our listeners what you mean by vertical integration and why is it such a challenge for incumbent law firms? So, uh, and this is a debate that was in the practice magazine published by Harvard Law School, Richard Susskind, and I think Neville Eisenberg, who's a partner of Brian Cave, said, you know, the future model is a vertically integrated model. And their core claim was that to look at the alternative legal service providers are only one and a half percent of the market. They've been around 15 years. The way you really the attraction is you have to bundle together a bespoke expert lawyer with this process and technology to it. You need a vertically integrated law firm to do it. And so build it and they will come. And the challenge with that is I picked up on a rejoiner from Alex Hamilton, who believes there needs to be a vertically integrated law firm and has been building one. Now, Alex Hamilton, this was written in a post, I think 241 on legal evolution, or it's called Humble Pie Diet. I tell the story of Alex Hamilton. Alex Hamilton, 2010, is a partner at Latham Watkins, sees this opportunity to do more with less, writes a meticulous memo to Latham Watkins executive committee saying, hey, there's an market opportunity, we should go do this. And they ignore it. And then he quits and he starts his own law firm, Radiant Law. Now, Radiant Law is a process-driven vertical integration law firm. It's based in London. It's got operations in South Africa. It's got some big clients and it's done pretty well, but Alex is on a 12-year journey to do it. And his rejoinder to Richard and Eisenberg was, you know, Susskind and Eisenberg was, you got to be patient here because look at none of the AMLAW 200 or the Global 100 have taken you up on building this vertical integration model. Why? Because the equity partners are going to kill this effort to kind of cannibalize what they make a lot of money on here. And this this picks up on this idea of one funeral at a time here. The partners cannot see, and I don't, I don't want to say that it sounds overly negative, but they're familiar with a model that's worked really well for generations. Here's another model that maybe would be delightful to the customer, but the customers aren't really kind of ready to buy it here. So it can exist in theory, but it's not quite an existent practice until you can build it out here. And Alex's point is just start with a green sheet of paper, a fresh sheet of paper, and build it as a greenfield operation because these legacy law firms are going to have a hell of a time making the transition. It's an innovator's dilemma is really what it is. It's it's a Clayton Christensen innovator's dilemma. And so I took a position on that, the Susskind-Alex Hamilton debate. And so uh, I think I'm on Alex Hamilton's side here. Yeah, it's difficult to completely revamp an existing structure where the owners of the structure are doing fairly well. Yes, you know? yes. Yes. I mean, the, uh, yes, it is. That's the most understated thing that I've heard this week. Yes, correct. <laughs> Are you seeing any movement in the legal industry of, of yeah. firms moving towards uh, more integrated service delivery? Yeah, uh, absolutely. The, well, the, the key thing here is that the reason why Richard and Eisenberg advocate for this one is you got a lot of cash. 
that's being developed. You've got access to customers, which is really, really valuable. And you've got this trusted brand. Like a lot of people would want to buy it through your brand here because your brand has a lot of equity, you know, value. The problem is, is it's completely different than how people have made money in the past. And so it's just a bridge too far too fast for a lot of those folks. And frankly, the clients are very similar to the law firm lawyers here. The clients aren't really ready for this vertical integration model here. This is something that's going to take two generations to do. The younger lawyers that are coming in here, they want work-life balance here. Well, you know, Alex can probably offer that in Radiant Law. And so I think that over a longer period of time here, you're going to slowly see kind of a retool into the big law environment model because some of the work that is going to be shifted to these new providers as Alex's firm grows. And I still think that there's going to be some big law firms that turn the corner. Some of them are actively trying to turn the corner now, including Cypher. I want to just talk just a little bit about the Institute for the Future of Legal Practice, IFLIP. Yeah. Because it strikes me that this is correlated to what we've just talked about, that if we're talking about intergenerational change and change management, teaching those generations coming in various concepts of process and change is critical to laying the foundation for results five years from now, 10 years from now, a generation from now. I wrote about this intergenerational strategy with his own post on legal evolution. And this is not a new idea. Paul Cravath made the decision. He didn't want to hire anybody who ever worked for another law firm because they were bringing in these acquired bad habits from other law firms and it was too expensive to get rid of them. It was just much easier to teach people the right way from the beginning. And so he saw the value of starting with good raw capital or raw human capital and shaping it. And that's been an enduring model here. We're four generations deep into it. It's not practiced with the rigor that it used to be, but the model is still kind of carrying us forward here. A second example, though, is just Westlaw. It was very controversial for Westlaw to basically do the law school strategy where they gave away all this. Not only did they give away free access to the Westlaw research, but they staffed these law school hotlines with the very expensive practice lawyers. And so as a, as a law student, I could call them up and I could have them help me with my LRW assignment for nothing. And that was a view that's very controversial because it's extraordinarily expensive. But that turned out to be an extraordinarily good investment for Westlaw. They basically were just saying, instead of trying to convince Cypher that they should be teaching people how to use legal research, we train them in the law schools, and then the students get hired at Cypher, and they demand access to Westlaw. That was their play, and it worked. It did indeed work. So last question as we wrap up, Bill. There's been a lot of debate in the press over the years and recently about the value of a law school education compared to debt and everything else. And I assume you have young people, undergraduates, or people thinking about going back to law school after some experience, come and ask for advice. Should I go to law school? What do you tell them? Well, I minimize your debt load as best as you can here. And I can't even fathom trying to solve problems without my legal training. I mean, it's just, it's been incredibly valuable. I got interdisciplinary legal training at the University of Chicago. My economics theory has come in handy. Network analysis has come in handy. And then, I, you know, it kind of created an appetite for that kind of multidisciplinary thinking here. I still think that a legal education just makes you a better thinker and a better communicator. Just you want to keep those debt loads low. And I, I would not overweight the value of a pedigree here. You know, if you're smart and a good problem solver, I think, Steve, you probably have a few people that went to Indiana or lower-ranked schools that are heavy hitters <laughs> that have built a, a big book of That's business. Absolutely right. Yeah. Absolutely right. They did well in school, and they've done well in the practice. Yeah, and hopefully they went to school on scholarships. So <laughs> We all hope that. 
Well, Bill, thank you very much. For people who want to see more of your writing, we referred to it. Your blog, Legal Evolution, has some great contributors, not just your writing, but some great contributors like my old friend Jay Um is yes. always pops up on there. So thank you very much for your time, and uh, we look forward to what's next. Thanks a million, Steve. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.